Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. On April 29th, 2008, 27-year-old Michelle Murphy was suddenly jolted awake in the middle of the night by an unknown assailant. She thought he was pounding on her chest. In the milliseconds it took to orient herself, she realized he wasn't hitting her, but rather, he was stabbing her. She didn't know it yet, but her strength, quick reflexes, and ability to fight back will put an end to an 18-year reign of terror by an unknown serial killer. Okay, on to the show. Sometime after 11 o'clock p.m., an unknown man climbed up the side of Michelle Murphy's second-story apartment building, removed the living room screen, and slipped inside. Meticulous in his task for the evening, he first unlocked and opened her front door, giving himself an easy escape route should the need arise. Better safe than sorry. Next, he entered her bedroom and straddled her as she slept. Within seconds, he had plunged his serrated knife into her chest. He stabbed her in the shoulder, right arm, and sternum, all before she was able to ascertain what was happening. But as she fully awakened, she began to fight, and she fought hard for her life. Michelle was able to grab the serrated blade, while simultaneously bringing her knees up to her chest and extending them against her attacker's torso. It was this reflex that probably saved her life. While she pushed him away with her legs, she also grabbed the knife by the blade. The assailant was quickly losing control, and his focus was concentrated on regaining control of the knife. As he tried to loosen her grip, she managed to cut his wrist with the blade. It was this single act that caused her assailant to realize he had lost control of the situation and flee. The realization that he was bleeding caused him to lose his upper hand and as he began to flee the apartment, he told Michelle that he was terribly sorry for hurting her. Michelle, running on pure adrenaline, crawled through her bedroom on her hands and knees and set about securing her front door and living room window. In her mind, she needed to close off any pathways for her attacker to return. As she continued to lose blood, she next crawled to her cell phone, and in her shock, she bypassed calling 911 and instead called her boyfriend. Her boyfriend called 911 on her behalf and then headed to her apartment. When the police called her back, she was able to tell them the little that she knew. A man, wearing a hoodie and a hat, came into her bedroom and stabbed her. In fact, he came very close to killing her. Her sternum managed to prevent the knife from penetrating her heart or any of the surrounding major aortic valves. When Sergeant Richard Lewis arrived at the crime scene, he was able to follow a bloody trail from his victim's apartment all the way where it suddenly ended in the alleyway between his victim's apartment building and the apartment building directly across the alley. After her emergency surgery, she was able to tell Detective Lewis of an odd man across from her apartment building whom she felt was acting strangely around her. She had no concrete proof other than his apartment allowed him to stare directly into her apartment when her blinds were open. He had attempted to introduce himself to her several times, finding excuses to cause them to interact with one another. She also noticed him often staring into her apartment he made her very uncomfortable. That man would turn out to be Michael Gargiulo, and he did in fact live in the apartment across the alleyway from hers. He lived there with his living girlfriend and their small child. With plenty of forensic evidence in this case, Detective Lewis was hoping for a DNA match, which he got just a few short weeks after the attack. They matched Murphy's neighbor, Michael Gargiulo, the details of why his DNA was in the system would be eerily similar to the attack on Michelle. The DNA results from the attack 
were entered into the system in 2002, stemming from a 1993 attack on a Chicago teenager by the name of Trisha Boccaccio. Michael would have been just 17 years old at the time of that attack. Michael Gargiulo was born on February 15, 1976, in Illinois, and attended Glenbrook South High School in Cook County, a Chicago suburb. He came from an emotionally and physically abusive home and was an awkward and insecure teenager. His friends described him with conflicting personality traits, leaving authorities to believe there was more than one face to Michael Gargiulo. While some friends described him as a quiet wallflower, other friends said he had a, quote, crazy switch, and once it flipped, he became emotional with a dark and explosive temper. One of those friends since second grade was Doug Boccaccio. Michael would often have dinner at the Boccaccio family home. Later, Doug would describe his friend as often behaving like a, quote, caged animal. Doug had an older brother named Tom and an older sister named Trisha. Trisha was born on January 18, 1975 in Evanston, Illinois, to parents Rick and Diane. Trisha knew Michael Gargiulo as her younger brother's friend who lived a block away. The Boccaccio family lived on an idyllic tree-lined street in the town of Glenview, a middle-class Chicago suburb. Trisha was described by friends as a beautiful person inside and out, full of energy, full of life, and always happy and cheerful. Trisha's mother was very proud of her hardworking, extroverted daughter. She stated Trisha was genuinely a nice person and had a great attitude about anything she encountered. She was a hard worker, driven, and knew what she wanted out of life. The petite brunette was described by a neighbor as beautiful and vivacious. She was known as a math whiz, got straight A's, and won many academic awards on her high school debate team. On August 14, 1993, Trisha was out celebrating the last days of summer with a group of her friends, including her high school boyfriend. The next day, she was leaving to attend Purdue University and pursue her dream of becoming an engineer. That night, her friend Karen arranged a scavenger hunt and dinner party for the close group of friends. Sometime around 1 a.m. after dropping off some friends, Trisha arrived home, parking her car in the front driveway. The Boccaccio family never used their front door and anyone who knew the family would be familiar with this fact. The family only used the side door to enter and exit their home. Unbeknownst to Trisha, her brother's friend, Michael, was hiding out of sight in the bushes next to the side door. It is believed that Michael surprised Trisha from behind, grabbed her left arm, and pulled it behind her back, causing it to break with a spiral fracture. He then began stabbing her in the upper left torso, concentrating the 12 stab wounds around her left breast. The medical examiner determined that three of the stab wounds would have immediately been fatal. Trisha's body would remain there until the next morning, when she would be found by her father. Rick Boccaccio, Trisha's father, had just made his morning coffee and was getting ready to leave for work. As he exited the side door, something out of the corner of his eye caught his attention. It was, quote, two little tennis shoes sticking up by the side of the door. As he approached the shoes, he discovered they belonged to his 18-year-old daughter, Trisha. He yelled for his son to call 911, but there was nothing that could be done to help his daughter. She was blue and covered in blood. In fact, she had been stabbed so viciously, she was almost decapitated. Soon, the Cook County homicide detectives showed up and cordoned off the scene. Police found only a few bits of evidence, a keychain and a bloody footprint, but the keychain belonged to Trisha, and it would turn out that the footprint belonged to her father, Rick. In 1993, DNA was in its infancy. At the time, there was no such thing as touch DNA. In accordance to the evidence collection protocol back in 1993, Trisha's fingernail clippings were retained as evidence. However, they weren't separately stored from one another. Police confirmed that Trisha hadn't been robbed or sexually assaulted, so those motives were initially ruled out. 
It should be noted that according to the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit, stabbing a woman can symbolically take the place of a rape, as it is a penetration with a sharp and pointed object within close personal range. The stabbing is a similar thrusting motion that can mimic an actual rape, especially in cases where a perpetrator can feel emasculated by the object of their secret obsession. When a man stabs a woman, it can be indicative of someone who detests women and their inherent sexuality. Because of the brutality of the crime against Trisha, police believe there was a connection with her killer. But as hard as they tried, police weren't able to find anyone who had issues with Trisha. Police discovered there was a pool party in the cul-de-sac on the night of August 13th. They interviewed partygoers, but none of them saw anything due to a thick fog. Michael was one of the many neighbors drawn to the crime scene that night. But Michael had a personal reason for being there. He wanted to look at the aftermath of his work. But when he ran into his friend Scott, he appeared to be completely and totally shocked by the murder. Law enforcement discovered that Michael lived by the Picaccio family just five houses away and was friends with Trisha's younger brother, Doug. Michael was around the Picaccio family quite a bit. In fact, two days before Trisha was murdered, Michael and Scott drove Trisha and her boyfriend to her boyfriend's house. According to Trisha's family, Michael and Trisha were not friends. Only Doug and Michael were friends. A year before Trisha was murdered, Michael began drawing attention to himself with some strange behavior. After the murder of Trisha, Michael found reasons to visit the Picaccio family and interact with her parents, Rick and Diane. He brought over flowers and plants for Diane, and on one occasion, he even bought Rick a shirt. Another time, he brought them both a gift card to a restaurant. When Rick and Diane brought this behavior up to the police, they discussed it with a criminal psychologist. The psychologist told the Picaccios that Michael was, quote, trying to expiate his sin, and he was doing that by trying to atone for his crime with the presence. Then, the police heard about a conversation between Doug and Michael, where Michael hypothetically asked Doug if he'd killed a person who'd murdered his sister, if given the chance and opportunity. Doug stated that as her brother, he would not only have to kill that person, he would want to kill them. Later that day, Michael contacted the police and told them that Doug had threatened his life. Despite these obvious signs of guilt and troubling comments, police weren't able to develop any prosecutable evidence against Michael. The murder of Trisha Boccaccio was officially cold. In 1997, a team was put together to solve the cold case murder of Trisha Boccaccio. Within a few months of the team's assembly, they had a new suspect a student at Glenbrook South High School named Eric Agazem. The team also thought that Michael could still somehow be involved in the murder and were looking for ways to connect the two. Although they continued to talk to Michael, they were never able to connect him to Eric. However, when they asked Eric to come in for an interview, he refused. This caused Eric to move up as their new prime suspect. In the summer of 1997, Michael was arrested for felony vehicular burglary. Still believing that Michael knew something about Eric's involvement in Trisha's murder, police made an offer to Michael's attorney. If Michael told them what he knew about Trisha's murder, then they would reduce the felony charge against him down to a misdemeanor. But Michael was done cooperating with authorities in regard to Trisha's murder. He flatly refused. This brought Michael back up as a viable suspect. In the fall of 1998, Michael suddenly showed up at the Picaccio house five years after the murder. Diane answered the door and Michael said he needed to talk to Rick, but Rick wasn't home from work yet. Michael insisted he needed to talk to him and asked if he could wait. Finally, when Rick arrived home an hour later, Michael told him he had something important to tell him. Just as he was about to tell him this important information, Michael's father and sister showed up at the Picaccio home. They insisted that Michael needed to leave with them immediately. Rick was convinced that Michael was about to confess to Trisha's murder. Rick immediately called law enforcement to tell them about the strange interaction. 
but there was nothing they could do because Michael Gargiulo suddenly and inexplicably moved out of state. Very soon after Michael's almost confession with Rick Boccaccio, his family thought it best that Michael got out of Chicago and pursue his dreams. Accordingly, Michael moved to Los Angeles to try his hand at acting and professional boxing. At 6'2 and a lean but muscular 165 pounds, he started sending out headshots and attending acting auditions. But the past wasn't done with Michael. A few months after moving to California, Michael found himself back in Cook County, testifying in front of a grand jury pursuant to a subpoena. Prior to leaving California, Michael told police that he suspected Erica Gossam in the murder of Trisha Picaccio. Eric was a mutual friend of his and Doug Picaccio's. Michael told the Cook County investigators that Eric came to his house after Trisha's murder. He was visibly upset and asked Michael to help him hide a gym bag. Michael didn't know what was inside the bag, but he stated that Eric strongly implied it contained the murder weapon. But those statements were made before he left to California. During his grand jury testimony, Michael admitted what he told police was all a lie. Fortunately for Eric, the police were unable to develop any real evidence against him, and the case once again went cold. Meanwhile, back in California in mid-1999, Temple Brown was looking for someone to play a boxer in his graduate thesis film for USC Film School. Michael auditioned and seemed perfect for the part. Brown was very happy with his performance at the time, but later he would say that he felt something was odd and off about Michael. Temple felt Michael was, quote, withdrawn, maybe somewhat shy even, but just kind of very quiet and kind of kept to himself and didn't really talk a whole lot. In 2000, new detectives were assigned to Trisha's cold case. With advances in forensics, they decided to submit Trisha's fingernail clippings for testing at the Illinois State Police Crime Lab. They hoped the changes in recent technology would yield a DNA profile of their suspect. The test results showed that there were two people's DNA in the fingernail clippings, Trisha's, and an unknown male contributor. With renewed hope that this case would finally be solved, the new team obtained DNA samples from 20 possible suspects including Eric Gazam. No one was a match. The only DNA left to check was Michael Gargiulo. Michael was now living in Hollywood, and just like in Illinois, there was a young, petite, and sometimes brunette that lived a block away who had caught his attention. Just like Trisha, she was outgoing, vivacious, and had a lot of male interest. Her name was Ashley Ellerin. Ashley Lauren Ellerin was born on July 16, 1978, to parents Michael and Cynthia Ellerin. They raised Ashley and her brother Seth in Los Altos, a close-knit community in Northern California. Ashley was described by her friends as beautiful, fun, and spontaneous. She often commanded attention without saying a word. People naturally flocked to her energy and love for life. In high school, she excelled in academics and participated in the swim and water polo teams. She graduated in 1996 and moved to Hollywood, California. There, she attended the prestigious Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, known as FIDM. Quickly, Ashley had amassed a close core group of friends in her new town, and their house was often a gathering place for impromptu parties. Ashley was young, popular, and carefree, and she had caught the attention of several men in Hollywood, one being her married landlord with whom she was having a secret and illicit affair. She had also caught the attention of a young and up-and-coming actor by the name of Ashton Kutcher. He was an actor on the hit show, That 70s Show, and had just been featured in the recently released film, Dude, Where's My Car?, with actress Jennifer Garner. On the night of February 21st, 2001, 22-year-old Ashley had a date to attend a Grammy Award party with Ashton Kutcher. Ashton was supposed to be at her house by 8 p.m., but he called her at 8.24 to apologize and tell her he was running late. 
During that phone call, Ashley explained she too was running late and had just gotten out of the shower and still needed to blow dry her hair. Unfortunately, Ashton lost track of time and didn't arrive at Ashley's house until after 10.45 p.m. Her red BMW was parked in the driveway and the lights were on inside the house. However, when he knocked, there was no answer. He looked inside the window and noticed the house seemed in disarray and he also sawed some spilled wine in the hallway. Ashton assumed that Ashley left for the night because she was upset that he was now twice late in picking her up. Ashton continued to try and call her throughout the night, but she never answered. Earlier in the evening, Ashley's roommate, Jennifer, also went by their house, hoping Ashley would be home to let her inside. She had left her keys inside her boyfriend's car earlier that day. But at 10 p.m., Ashley didn't answer the door, and Jennifer assumed she was out on her date, so she went back to her boyfriend's house to retrieve her keys and wound up staying the night. The next morning, Jennifer returned home at 8.30 and found Ashley's body in the hallway outside her bathroom, still wearing her robe she put on after her shower. Jennifer stated she saw Ashley, quote, laying across the two stairs, absolutely blue and covered in blood. Ashley's body had been posed in a degrading position and her head had been turned in a way to show the gaping wound to her neck. Jennifer stated there were no signs of a struggle, and she was concerned the assailant was still inside the house. She ran to her car to call 911. Detective Tom Small was one of the first officers at the scene. In his interview with the show 48 Hours, he said that he still remembers the crime scene to this day and categorized it as one of the worst he had ever seen throughout his career. There was a tremendous amount of blood, and it was clear that the person who had killed her had a lot of anger and rage. The medical examiner determined that Ashley had been stabbed 47 times, and 12 of her wounds were fatal on their own. One of the stab wounds to her neck was so deep that only her spinal cord was keeping her head attached to her body. It looks like there was an attempt to completely sever it. Some of the other wounds were to her chest, stomach, and back, and several were more than six inches deep. One of the stab wounds actually penetrated Ashley's skull, and upon removal, it extricated a puzzle piece-sized portion of her skull. Ashley put up a good fight and had 13 defensive injuries, but ultimately, she was no match for her frenzied attacker. Again, just like in Trisha's case, there was no signs of robbery or sexual assault. But as we know, the mere act of stabbing in some cases can be sexually motivated. Later in trial, we will learn that Ashley had just had sex with her landlord prior to receiving the call from Ashton Kutcher at 8.24 p.m. It was very soon thereafter that she was attacked, as evidenced by her still wearing her robe. In Trisha's case, Michael and Scott gave Trisha and her boyfriend a ride home, two days before the murder. It's possible seeing them together was the motivation for his attack on Trisha the night before she left for college, which explains why he had to lie in wait for her behind the bush next to her side door. He knew this was his last chance to exact his revenge. Michael was also known to stalk Ashley and would often watch her from the dog park across the street from her house. It's possible he saw her with her landlord, thus motivating her fatal attack. There wasn't any evidence at the scene that would lead police to a suspect, so Detective Small had to start ruling people out. Detective Small spoke with Ashton and was able to determine through building a timeline that his alibi meant he was no longer a viable suspect. He also spoke with Ashley's landlord, Mark Durbin. Mark and Ashley were engaged in a secret sexual relationship and had sex the night of her murder between 7 and 8 o'clock p.m. Mark stated he left her house around 8.15, about 10 minutes before her phone call with Ashton. Mark stated when he left, Ashley had jumped into the shower to get ready for a party. Mark, who lived up the street, stated at around 10 o'clock p.m. that night, he saw someone walking back and forth in front of Ashley's house. They appeared to be pacing. After speaking with Ashley's friends, 
Detective Small found that a suspicious guy had introduced himself to Ashley a few months prior to her murder. Ashley and her friend Christopher were outside fixing a flat tire when the man came up to them and said his name was Mike and that he was a heating and air guy. He went inside Ashley's residence to look at their heater, which was having problems. Once inside, he became very talkative and began telling them stories about his days as a professional boxer. After that encounter, friends stated he became fixated on Ashley. He appeared to want to be included in their friend group and became obsessed with their party lifestyle. Michael would show up at her place at odd hours uninvited. One friend noticed Michael parked outside her residence in his car, just staring at her house at 4 a.m. The next morning, Ashley's friend Justin confronted Michael when he came by and asked why he was stalking Ashley. Michael denied stalking Ashley and stated he was parked there because he was unable to return home. The FBI were at his house trying to get a DNA sample from him regarding a murder in Chicago. Justin asked Michael what there was to hide, and Michael pulled up his pant leg and showed Justin a knife strapped to his ankle. Justin became frightened of Michael's demeanor and rushed him out of the house. Later, Ashley and her friends decided that Michael's story about the FBI and the murder was an unlikely fantasy. Based on the information Detective Small got from Ashley's friends, he was able to determine and identify this heating and air guy as Michael Gargiulo. Detective Small took a copy of Michael's driver's license photo and began re-interviewing people, looking for witnesses who could place him at the scene on the night of the murder. As Detective Small spoke with people, he learned that Michael was quite the storyteller. He told some people he was an HVAC repairman and he had been badly electrocuted on the job. He told others he was training for the Olympics for boxing. But the story Michael told most frequently was that the Chicago police were framing him for a murder and attempting to take his DNA. Michael was Detective Small's main suspect in Ashley's homicide. Just like in Trisha's case, Michael thought it was time to move away from the eyes of the Hollywood investigators. Michael packed up and moved to El Monte, a Los Angeles suburb. There, he rented an apartment in a safe multi-unit gated apartment complex. But investigators in both cases weren't done with him, not by a long shot. In 2002, Cook County detectives traveled to California to get a DNA sample from Michael. The detectives contacted Detective Small, who was also looking into Michael Gargiulo for a similar stabbing murder as Trisha's. After the two shared information on their respective cases, it became clear they were both focusing on the right subject. They immediately began working together. In the meantime, Michael, who thought of himself as a forensics expert, was also taking evasive measures to avoid making his location a part of any public record. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. I have always believed that I was lactose intolerant, but pretty soon I'll have an answer, thanks to Everly Well. I used to eliminate things from my diet to see what it was, but it seemed like there were a lot of things that were wrong with me. It felt like I had no control whatsoever over my health. When I found out about Everly Well, I was really excited to give it a go. Everly Well offers more than 35 at-home lab tests, from food sensitivity, which is the one I will be taking, to thyroid, to STD, and heart health tests. Each Everly Well collection kit comes with super easy-to-follow instructions, so all you have to do is collect your sample from home on your own time, and your results are reviewed by a board-certified physician, and then they are sent directly to you digitally within just a few days. You can even share them with your healthcare provider. I know I can't wait to see what my results are. For 15% off an Everly Well at-home lab test, visit everlywell.com slash TCFC and enter code TCFC. That's everlywell.com slash TCFC, code TCFC for 15% off your test. Everly Well, at-home lab test, your answers, your way. I finally decided on my pair of Warby Parkers. I know it took me forever. I chose the Fae, which is a rounded cat eye shape. I haven't done a cat eye shape in forever. 
Now you can find your own pair of Warby Parkers. If you need help, just take the quiz, answer a few quick questions, and they'll suggest some great looking glasses that are totally personalized to fit your face and style. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. Blue light filtering lenses are also now available, which is so freaking awesome. If you have an iPhone X, make sure to download Warby Parker's app where you can use their brand new virtual try-on, allowing you to try on eyeglasses, seeing the realistic color, texture, and size of each style using just your phone. Order five pairs of glasses and try them on for five days. There's no obligation to buy. It ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Head to warbyparker.com TCFC to order your free home try-on. Take the quiz to find a pair that is perfect for you today. He avoided putting any assets or utilities in his name, preferring to put those things in the name of whomever he was dating at that time. However, by working together, detectives were able to locate him and serve an order compelling him to provide a DNA sample. In his van at the time, they discovered three knives, binoculars, and a backpack containing a Halloween mask and a handgun. However, once he provided a sample, he was free to go. By February 2003, Michael was dating someone he met after fixing her HVAC unit. However, they got in a physical altercation where he hit her so hard that her retina became detached in one of her eyes. He also stalked her and threatened her by telling her he had a degree in forensics and he knew how to kill her and get away with it. Eventually, she filed a restraining order against him and he moved on to someone else. In September 2003, the long-awaited DNA results came back in, and they were found to be a match for the DNA that was found on the swab of Trisha's fingernail clippings. However, because of the collection methods utilized in 1993, the crime scene investigator used one swab for collection of both under and on top of the nail bed. This opened up the results for the defense attorney to argue this result was due to casual contact. Michael was a family friend with the victim's brother. He was regularly at the family home, and he had been in a car with Trisha just two days before she was murdered. In a stunning turn of events, the Cook County State Attorney didn't feel they had sufficient evidence to bring Michael to trial in the murder of Trisha Picaccio. Nevertheless, Michael's DNA was entered into a national database. When Detective Small discovered the Cook County prosecutor declined to charge Michael with murder, he was both surprised and dismayed. He was sure Michael had committed Ashley's murder as well, but unfortunately, he didn't have any physical evidence proving Michael was at the scene of the crime. Trisha's family were both outraged and disheartened by the prosecutor's decisions. They felt their daughter's killer was getting away with murder. It felt like being victimized all over again. That decision would turn out to have wide and far-reaching consequences as a result. In the meantime, Michael had a new woman who caught his eye, and she was the newest object of his obsession. Just like Trisha and Ashley, she lived very close, close enough that he could watch her every day from his very own apartment window. Her name was Maria Bruno. Maria Bruno, an aspiring model and actress, was born on July 13, 1973, in the Central American country of El Salvador. She became a U.S. naturalized citizen in 1984. Maria, the mother of four children, was just recently separated from her frequently abusive husband. She had a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and two-year-old twins who remained with their father, who had primary custody. Maria had just recently moved into the same apartment complex as Michael just 10 days before she was attacked. She specifically picked the complex because she believed it was very secure, requiring either a passcode or key to gain entry into the front door of the building. What she didn't realize is the person she most needed to keep out was already inside the gates. On December 1st, 2005, she had been out for dinner and drinks with her estranged ex-husband 
as they were both trying to build back trust and work things out for the sake of their children. In fact, their date went so well, she invited him inside where they engaged in sexual activity before he had to leave to check on their children. Just like in Trisha's and Ashley's cases, seeing the object of his obsession in the arms of another man may have triggered his deep-rooted feelings of inadequacy, emasculation, and rage, thus causing him to attack in a frenzied rage. Maria's husband left her apartment around 2.30 a.m., leaving Maria all alone. It appears that, similar to what he would do later in Michelle's case, Michael removed the ground floor screen from the kitchen window to gain entry. Once inside, he grabbed a knife from the kitchen and made his way into Maria's bedroom. There, he would stab her 17 times as she lay sleeping in bed, possibly never knowing what was happening. Four of the 17 stab wounds were fatal and concentrated over her left breast as he had done in previous attacks. Three more stab wounds had the possibility of being fatal, assuming medical care didn't get to her in time. She only had one defensive wound, which could have meant she lost consciousness just as soon as she began to fight. One court document attributed the one defense wound to Maria's blood alcohol content, believing it was reflexive and she was more than likely never able to fight back. Her neck was slashed so deeply she was nearly decapitated. Both of her breast and areolas were removed from her body. One of her areolas was placed in her mouth with a nipple pointing up. Her breast and breast implants were positioned around her head and shoulders. Her head was turned in a way to maximize the size of the gaping wound in her neck. Maria's husband, Irving, returned the next morning at 8 a.m. and found her horrifically posed body before calling 911. According to the detective first on scene, Mark Lillenfeld, it was unlike anything he had ever seen before in his law enforcement career. He stated that, quote, the violence that was visited upon her was phenomenal. Again, as in the other attacks, police determined that burglary, robbery, and sexual assault were not the motive. However, as we know, the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit believes crimes of this nature where the sex organs such as breasts, nipples, or reproductive organs are repeatedly stabbed and destroyed in fact mimic the penetration of a rape by substituting a knife in place of a penis. Michael, who thought of himself as an expert in forensics, made a mistake this time. In the courtyard outside Maria's apartment were droplets of blood, and next to some of those droplets were blue disposable booties, the type usually worn by repairmen or construction workers when entering a residence or sometimes worn by surgeons to avoid becoming tainted by blood. On the sole of the booty, there was a drop of Maria's blood. Investigators were told by some of Maria's friends that there was a, quote, weird guy that had been watching her and he followed her into her apartment without her knowing. She described him as dark-haired and wearing a hoodie. When she confronted him, he said, okay, I'm leaving, and then exited her apartment. While the investigation into Maria's murder was ongoing, Michael moved to Santa Monica to avoid further scrutiny. As we know, it was in Santa Monica where Michael assaulted his neighbor, Michelle, who was able to successfully fight him off. As we head back to Santa Monica and the attack on Michelle Murphy, the police had just matched the blood trail outside their victim's apartment to a man who lived in the apartment across the alleyway. A man who had lived next door to other stabbing victims, beginning when he was just 17 years old. Within 24 hours of receiving the DNA results, Michael Gargiulo was arrested for the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. During the arrest, Police found blue booty shoe covers, which matched the same type of booties found outside the Maria Bruno homicide. As he was taken into custody, Michael asked the arresting officer, quote, which agency is this? That told police that Michael had attacked so many women that he wasn't sure which one had jurisdiction over his arrest. 
The reason investigators were able to get a DNA match so quickly was because Michael's DNA was already in the national database. It was put there by the Cook County Prosecutor's Office, who originally failed to charge Michael with Trisha Boccaccio's homicide. When Sergeant Lewis called Cook County to inquire why their suspect's DNA was on file, he was told Michael was their prime suspect from a 1993 murder back when Michael was just 17 years old. Cook County also informed him they had contact from another detective in the 2002 murder of Ashley Ellerin. Next, Sergeant Lewis called Detective Mark Lillenfield, who worked on the murder of Maria Bruno, and asked them if they had any evidence that could be tested against their suspect, as Sergeant Lewis believed that the murder of Maria and the attempted murder of Michelle were likely related. In fact, Sergeant Lewis believed they had caught a serial killer. Dr. Lillenfield started looking into Michael and was stunned to find out he had lived in the same apartment complex as Maria. He also learned that Michael had told many people that he found Maria to be quite attractive. Next, Detective Lillenfield served a search warrant on Michael's old apartment in El Monte for evidence in Maria's murder. Up in the attic, crime scene investigators found the matching blue booty shoe cover, which was the same manufacturer and same make and model that had been left in the courtyard next to Maria's blood droplets. They also found a hoodie and a hat hidden in the attic. Detectives Small and Lillenfield then took their evidence to the Los Angeles District Attorney, and the DA felt like there was enough evidence to charge Michael Gargiulo with the murders of Ashley and Maria. Hoping to strengthen their case with a confession, two undercover police officers were placed in the same jail cell with Michael. During the 40 hours they shared a cell, Michael implicated himself in up to 10 murders, including Ashley's and Maria's. He also told them about his plan to escape by ambushing the guards. The officers were taken out of the cell early because Michael tried to get them to assist him in a planned escape that involved overpowering the guards. When corrections officers searched him, they found two jail-made handcuff keys concealed in the waistband of his jail uniform. On September 24, 2008, Michael was indicted for the murders and burglaries of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno. On November 12, 2009, Michael was indicted for the attempted escape at the El Monte Jail. Prosecutors contended that by having the handcuff keys on his person and his recorded plans to attack the guards, authorities believed this constituted an official escape attempt. So, an attempted escape charge was tacked onto the two counts of murder with special circumstances one count of attempted murder, three counts of burglary, and one count of attempted escape. In May 2011, the nationally syndicated investigative magazine show, 48 Hours, featured an episode about Trisha's murder and Michael's possible involvement in her death. After the episode aired, two men came forward with information about Michael. One of the men had worked with Michael as a bouncer at the Rainbow Room in Los Angeles. He told the Cook County Police that Michael had bragged about how he had killed a woman back in Chicago. At the time, he didn't believe the story because Michael was known to tell tall tales. But when the man saw the 48 Hours episode, he realized the story was true. The man was flown to Cook County, where he gave a first-person account of what he knew to a grand jury. The other man testified that Michael asked him if he had ever killed anyone and when he said no, Michael said, well, I have. I stabbed a girl in my hometown and left her body on her doorstep. On July 27, 2011, 35-year-old Michael Gargiulo was finally charged with the first-degree murder of 18-year-old Trisha Picaccio. During the pre-trial press, Michael had been referred to as the Hollywood Ripper, the Boy Next Door Killer, and the Chiller Killer. It would take prosecutors almost 11 years to bring Michael to trial for the murders of Ashley and Maria and the attempted murder of Michelle. On May 2, 2019, during opening statements, the prosecution would refer to Michael as a, quote, serial psychosexual thrill killer. He stated that Michael stalked his victims and collected real-time intelligence on them. He knew their schedules. 
He knew the men they dated, and he planned his kills around close encounters they had with other men in an effort to allay suspicions away from himself and onto them. The prosecution stated that the murders of Trisha, Ashley, and Maria, and the attempted murder of Michelle were all very similar in nature. They all contained his signature or modus operandi. He would fixate on his victim's left breast, viciously mutilating them and ultimately stabbing them in the heart. In all of the cases, Michael planned his attacks carefully and then carried them out in near military precision in or near the victim's residences. He took extra careful measures to avoid leaving fingerprints and then later to avoid leaving his DNA. He left all his victims' bodies at the scene, posed in a grotesque fashion, leaving as little trace evidence of him as possible. The victims were all petite, attractive, and outgoing young women, and all the victims lived near Michael. The victims were all freely flirtatious with men, but didn't really pay much attention to Michael, which left him with feelings of rage and inadequacy. He felt emasculated by the alpha males his victims chose over him. He purposefully injected himself into all of his victims' lives, whether it be by being friends with their brother, as in the case of Trisha, or by befriending them by offering his HVAC services, as in the case of Ashley, or following them inside of their apartment without their knowledge, as in the case of Maria, or finally, repeatedly finding opportunities to greet them, as in the case of Michelle. All of Michael's attacks were blitz-style ambushes meant to stun his victims and catch them off guard. All of the murdered victims had stab wounds to the left breast. Michelle had a stab wound to her sternum, which may have saved her life. The prosecution was allowed to talk about the murder of Trisha in Illinois for the limited purpose of helping the jury to recognize and establish similarities across all of the cases. The defense team tried to establish reasonable doubt in the jury by pointing out there was no direct evidence tying their client to any of the murders. In fact, in each of the murders, there were alternative suspects without alibis and with motive to kill the victims. The defense believed that Mark Durbin was still in Ashley's apartment when she received the 8.24 p.m. phone call from Ashton. Having just engaged in sexual activity with the victim and hearing her make plans to see another man, had caused him to go into a blind rage and stab and kill her. The defense had documented police reports of the violence between Maria and her estranged husband, Irving. In fact, she had a current restraining order against him at the time of their date and subsequent sexual activity. Some of the violence against his wife included punching her in the face. The defense believed that Irving was enraged that Maria wouldn't come home and in a fit of anger, stabbed and mutilated her before running home to establish an alibi and then returning in the morning to pretend to find her. Their main contention was that there was no direct evidence tying Michael to the crime scenes of Ashley and Maria. In fact, they believed that Michael had dropped his work booty in the courtyard outside Maria's apartment and the real killer somehow left a droplet of blood on it as he attempted to flee. The defense admitted that Michael was present for Michelle's attack, but only part of him was present. They presented evidence that Michael was so badly abused by his family that he developed dissociative identity disorder, or what some may refer to as a split personality. They explained that their client was in a fugue state when he attacked Michelle, and when she fought back and cut him, he was jolted back to reality, which explains why he apologized and said he was sorry before fleeing her apartment. The prosecution alone had almost 250 witnesses, including Ashton Kutcher and Michelle Murphy. A psychologist for the prosecution testified that Michael has antisocial personality disorder, while a psychologist for the defense testified that Michael has dissociative identity disorder. A friend of Michael's, Mirko Hoffman, testified that Michael liked to watch America's Most Wanted. According to Hoffman, he watched the show to learn from the criminal's mistakes. Michael also told Hoffman that if he was ever accused of a crime, that he would lie, lie, lie until he died. Michael told Hoffman that he had researched forensic science 
and felt like he could get away with any crime he wanted to commit. During closing arguments, the prosecution told the jury that they should pay attention to Michael's signature elements of his crimes and use them to tie him to each of the murders and attempted murder. The jury deliberated for four days, and on August 15, 2019, 43-year-old Michael Gargiulo was found guilty of killing Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno, as well as the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. On August 22, 2019, the jury found Michael to be sane at the time he committed the murders of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno and the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. Michael Gargiulo is currently located in the Los Angeles Men's Central Jail and he is scheduled to be sentenced on October 7, 2019. After sentencing, Michael will be extradited to Illinois where he will stand trial for the first-degree murder of Trisha Picaccio. Her parents and brothers intend to be present each and every day of the trial. They have waited a long time for justice for the murder of their daughter and sister. Authorities believe it is possible that Michael has killed up to 10 women. Police are currently investigating similar crimes they believe can be tied to him. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram, TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was produced by Nico at We Talk of Dreams, content editing by Brittany Martinez, research and writing by Haley Gray. I'm your host, Lainey.